Phoenix Talks connects professionals in the life science, medical device, and food industries with useful content like webinars, job openings, articles, and virtual meetings to help you succeed in your career. This Life Science Focus podcast brings together some of our editorial staff to share insights into the latest B2B industry news to keep you up to date. This week on the show, we're discussing gene silencing treatment finally winning over England's public health body and Celtizo becoming the first FDA-approved interchangeable Humira biosimilar. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Xox Life Science Podcast. I'm Sarah Hand, Editor-in-Chief at Xox.com, and this week I'm joined by Aisha Rashid, Sydney Perlmutter, and Mira Nobulsi. Thanks for coming today. Aisha, I'll pass it over to you, and uh, you can introduce our first topic for today's discussion. Sounds good. Thanks, Sarah. So the first topic that we'll delve into this week is the newest interchangeable biosimilar for Humira called Siltizo uh, was approved last week by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, uh, for the treatment of several inflammatory conditions. Now, Siltizo has become the very first interchangeable biosimilar for um, AbbVie's Humira or Agilimumab. Now, this means that AbbVie, which is the maker of Humira, and it's uh, the world's top-selling drug, um, so the company could be in for some stiff competition with this uh, new approval. So, Siltizo has become only the second interchangeable biosimilar approved by the FDA, and as I mentioned, the very first one um, for uh, Humira. It's also the very first approved interchangeable monoclonal antibody. So there are a lot of firsts and seconds here uh, with this biosimilar. So Siltizo is a biosimilar to its reference product, Humira, and it's also interchangeable with it. So that means it can be substituted for Humira by a pharmacist without requiring a prescription from a physician. In July 2021, the FDA approved the first interchangeable biosimilar product, which was Semgly, which is um, an insulin uh, type treatment for the treatment of diabetes. So Semgly is both biosimilar to and interchangeable with Lantus. The FDA approved the Supplemental Biologics License Application, or the Supplemental BLA, for Celtizo as the first interchangeable biosimilar with Humira. So Celtizo actually first uh, got FDA approved in 2017 for the treatment of multiple chronic inflammatory diseases, which include moderate to severe rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, as well as moderate to severe Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, and chronic plaque psoriasis. Now, this new approval designates it as an interchangeable across all of these indications. So, Humira has come under a lot of fire recently uh, for multiple reasons, one being that um, it's selling at an inflated list price of $2,400 per dose. Um, and AbbVie, maker of Humira, has also been fighting accusations of patent abuses to prevent biosimilar competition. And because of all of this, the company has been facing intense scrutiny and legal troubles over creating a market monopoly with Humira, with its price gouging and all of these patent abuses. 
or allegations of patent abuses. So experts are saying that this FDA approval of Siltizo as a biosimilar, an interchangeable biosimilar at that, uh, for Humira, is a landmark achievement for the entire field because um, not only does it bring about competition to Humira and you know potentially opening up a, a market where you have a biosimilar that is um, cheaper than Humira. Siltizo is the first interchangeable monoclonal antibody, and most biosimilars are monoclonal antibodies. So this is a very important approval. Now, Boehringer um, Ingelheim, which is the maker of Siltizo, although it received the FDA approval, it won't be able to launch its product until July 1st, 2023, due to patent due to a patent settlement uh, that it has with AbbVie. Now, the FDA has approved 31 biosimilar products in total, and this includes the two recent interchangeable products that it approved uh, this year, including Siltizo. And as I mentioned, Humira biosimilars have been highly anticipated as it would offer patients a less expensive uh, alternative to the quite pricey AbbVie drug. Now, in the article, I kind of delved into some uh, information about the differences between biosimilars and interchangeables. Um, and I know Sarah uh, this year wrote a pretty great article um, about that topic as well, comparing um, the similarities and differences between biosimilars and interchangeables uh, through mm. a fact check that the FDA did. So that's a great piece to check out as well. So interchangeables are a type of biosimilar, and all interchangeables are biosimilars, but not all biosimilars are interchangeable. So the key, as I mentioned before, to interchangeables is that they can be substituted for a reference product without requiring a prescription. So a pharmacist can just sub out um, the drug, uh, the reference product with a biosimilar, with an interchangeable biosimilar, but not a just any biosimilar. It has to be approved as an interchangeable. Um, and if we talk about biosimilars versus generics, sometimes they're kind of mixed up, um, but the two are not the same. So a biosimilar is a biological product that is highly similar to a reference product that already has FDA approval, and it should have no clinically meaningful difference to that reference product. On the other hand, generics are synthetic copies, um, and they're designed to be completely identical to the reference product. Um, however, biosimilars are modeled after the reference product using biological components such as living cells, and therefore they are not identical. Um, and given this, biosimilars are molecularly more complex and larger than generics, um, which have simple chem chemistry because they're made out of uh, synthetic ingredients. And so this makes biosimilars more expensive and complicated to develop and manufacture. So developing generics is cheaper and it has shorter timelines to approval because the composition of, of uh, generics is already uh, approved and therefore less time is needed for research and development. And generics have the exact same active ingredient, um, but may vary with respect to excipients. So therefore, uh, the pathways to approval for generics are shorter than biosimilars, um, and biosimilars and interchangeable approval pathways 
um, the FDA has its own biosimilar and interchangeable approval pathway, and that involves uh, very rigorous approval standards. So yeah, that was uh, sort of the story last week. Um, I remember we did discuss AbbVie's Humira in a podcast earlier and how um, it had been facing accusations of price gouging and patent abuses. And now with this uh, interchangeable biosimilar, I think it's really going to open up um, competition, which is much needed, I think, in this area. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I think that um, there's been so much buzz around this idea of biosimilars and how uh, they've been compared to what generics have done for the traditional pharma space and um, increasing competition and lowering costs and things like that. Um, And I think that the consensus is, you know, they really haven't yet lived up to the hype. And I think the way in which they can is is when they achieve this interchangeable status. Um, because then, as you said, pharmacists are able to uh, confidently exchange one for the other, just as they might do right now for a generic version mm-hmm. of a pharmaceutical drug. Um, and I just think that's huge. I think that's going to um, really increase competition for AbbVie. But I can see in the next year before Bowringer is able to um, launch Siltizo. Uh, I can see them changing their advertising strategy for Humira to really position it as like the original the or, OG, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, ask for it by name, that sort of thing. Because mm. uh, I think we've seen similar things in the um, pharmaceutical space. I feel like I, I, maybe companies like Advil and Tylenol and that sort of thing try and position themselves that way because there are so many generic versions available um, that are often cheaper. So, uh, yeah, I could see that definitely happening. Um, in your research, was there any info on pricing for Siltizo? No pricing information yet, as okay. of yet. Yeah, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I think um, that'll be really key. Yeah, and 2023 is a big year for um, Humira Biosimilars. There are several companies, including Amgen and a couple of mm. others that uh, um, kind of slip my mind right now. But they're also um, gearing up for their launches in 2023. And they all came to settle- settlements with AbbVie over mm. patent um, uh, elements and patent um, sort of settlements. So 2023 is going to be a big year for, for this area. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And what do you, that's a great point, like that um, AbbVie is probably going to be relying on its branding um, mm-hmm. more so than anything with biosimilars entering the market in, in a couple of years. So like for you guys, when you go out, does not matter if you get Tylenol or just acetaminophen or, if, you know, like, do you, are you, do you go for the generics knowing that it's okay or does, does that brand name instill some kind of confidence or familiarity? Um, what does that do? Oh, 100% I go for the brand name. <laughs> but I, I don't, I don't <laughs> yeah. know why. I think it's like um, in the back of my mind, it's like if you go to a supermarket and you go to the no name, right, over the, no, the yeah, brand name. Yeah. It's like, I don't know, you, mm. I, I more readily choose the brand name because I perceive it as better. So with medicine, mm. at the back of my mind, it's like, oh, it's better. Don't go with the other stuff just in case. But in reality, yeah. it's actually the same, you know. So yeah. like, 
when a pharmacist will be like, oh, do you want the brand name or the generic name or the generic brand? I always say, oh, the brand name's available. <laughs> but like, I don't know why I do that, right? But I think it's because mm. of the subconscious of, oh, the brand name's definitely better. So yeah, but the more and more, more and more I expose myself to the idea that it's actually the same because people don't generally know that. They go, oh, it's more or less the same. Like a pharmacist will say that, but what is the less? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? <laughs> Yeah, I um I am kind of the same and I've been slowly learning to uh you know not let the marketing get to my head and and always go for like the cheaper option, but um in one case I was I've been taking um um a headache medication or a migraine medication for a few years and it's worked flawlessly and I get a call from my pharmacy saying that um they don't know when the next batch is coming out. So they mm. were recommending um, that I contact my doctor and see if I could get, you know, a different medication. And I was really upset about this because I'm like, no, there's nothing else like it, whatever. And I ended up being prescribed. Um, I don't know if it was a biosimilar or um, it had the same name, um, but I think maybe either a different dosage. But the main difference was that it just took a bit longer to um, to kick in. Oh, yeah. Okay. And I ended up being... Um, you know, trying that works the exact same. So I needed to get over that fear. And eventually the original came back into stock and they're, they're making it again now, but it really gave me like confidence in, um, you know, they're not just being one medication for like one thing. Like there are so many out there and I shouldn't have been as like hesitant or upset uh, because production issues are bound to happen. So I feel like that's a, another reason that biosimilars and I guess generics too are, are good. You can't just have one thing. Mm, that's really interesting to hear both of your experiences I, because I think um Opposite to you, Mira, I'm, I'm almost always going for generic, especially with things like uh, like um, acetaminophen or ibuprofen or something like that. I just, I'm always like, oh, it's cheaper, I'll go for it. Um, but I think you brought up a good point in, you know, what's the more or less when it comes to it being the same. And I think with generics, usually it's more similar than less. It's definitely the same chemical compound, but what's usually different is the excipients. So like the other non-medicinal ingredients that are added to the drug. So maybe um, the coating on Tylenol Mm -hmm. is different than the coating on generic acetaminophen. And so maybe it's um, either, you know, easier to swallow or sometimes, as you said, Sydney, there can be like quick release or slow release dosage forms that you might not find. You might find in the branded version, but you might not find in the generic. I think when it comes to the biosimilar, um, that's where I can see people being a little more concerned about trying a biosimilar version of a biologic because even though it's highly similar, it's still a, a biological product. So there's going to be some variability, even in between batches of the same product. Um, and that's where I think the interchangeables idea comes in to instill confidence in people because you know they've actually had to do clinical studies to show this is having the same benefit on patients as its reference product. Um, and I think that's that's really key. I've had a similar situation where I think I had some eye drops one time and I had the generic version and it wasn't working so well and they tried me on the branded and it was it it worked so it's like what was the difference there you know what I mean it was something to do with the excipients right um so yeah it is it is really interesting to hear your your different perspectives on that 
Yeah, I would say I lay somewhere in the middle. Um, you know, I've been guilty of going with the brand name a lot of the times, but of course, realizing that generics are no different, especially the if, you know, you're talking about the active ingredient, then that is mm-hmm. the same. So mm-hmm. I think that, you know, for generics, it's a bit easier. But like you said, Sarah, for biologics, it's a bit trickier. But then you have that uh, point about uh, them undergoing rigorous testing. So to ensure that they have the same clinical benefit as the um, reference product. So yeah, a lot of things to consider, but there are processes and pathways here and Really great to get your insights there. Okay, so moving to our next story, I'd like to talk about a new gene silencing treatment that was recently given the green light by the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, or NICE, or NICE, I'm not sure how they pronounce that, um, after this governing body in England actually had rejected the gene silencing treatment last year. So this new treatment is called Givlari or uh, Givoserin, and it's indicated for the treatment of the rare metabolic disorder acute intermittent porphyria, so or AIP. Now AIP is a type of acute hepatic porphyria, um, or AHP, which can cause severe pain and neurological sy- symptoms, including seizures, due to a buildup of toxic neuroproteins. So this governing body in England reversed its recommendation on this treatment um, right on the heels of new long-term results that were recently released for the treatment um, by Givlari's maker, Alnilam Pharmaceuticals. The phase three trial results showed that the treatment offered sustainable benefit to AIP patients and also confirmed its favorable safety profile. So this latest data may have um, had a hand in finally winning over this uh, health agency in England to reverse its decision and finally grant approval to the treatment. So Givlari was approved by the European Medicines Agency or the EMA in March 2020, and it was approved by the FDA in the U.S. in 2019. Now, the treatment comes with quite a hefty price tag of $39,000 per vial, which amounts to a total of $575,000 a year, so over half a million a year. Um, However, the company that makes the treatment recently offered a confidential discount just before um, Nisa's latest recommendation came out. So uh, this agency provides health guidelines based on evidence-based assessments of efficacy and safety and also serves as England's drug price watchdog. Uh, the treatment will be offered through the UK's National Health Service or the NHS. So AHP um, can be a life-threatening genetic condition um, caused by an inherited deficiency in the metabolic enzyme hydroxymethyl bilane synthase, and so a lack of this enzyme leads to accumulation of porphyrins, which are essential compounds found in the hemoglobin protein in the liver. So the buildup of porphyrins becomes toxic and can lead to nausea, vomiting, and seizures in extreme cases. So there is a report in the BBC uh, recently where uh, two 
sisters actually have the disease. And one of the sisters uh, recounted how she became paralyzed after a severe attack once and was in hospital for two years after it. Wow. Yeah. And so after participating in a clinical trial evaluating this gene silencing treatment, um, the sisters told the BBC that the difference was astronomical and that they're not in pain anymore. Uh, so really, it speaks to the significance of this treatment and its effectiveness. So clinical trial results have shown that Givlari reduces severe AIP symptoms by 74%. And the latest long-term results for the gene silencing treatment uh, come from a two-year interim analysis um, of a phase three randomized clinical trial. And the results from that trial show that um, Gilvari, given, um, I think, once a month for six months, led to reduction in levels of uh, key neurotoxic proteins and also reduced um, daily pain scores compared with placebo. Um, so they, this study found that the proportion of patients who continued to be attack-free was very high. It was 83% among patients on continued Givlari use and 76% among those who shifted from placebo to Givlari treatment. Uh, and the way that Givlari works is that it reduces um, levels of an enzyme called ALAS1 um, through RNA interference mediated gene silencing. So ALS. So it targets the ALAS1 mRNA, and that leads to lowering of the toxic uh, neuroproteins implicated in the disease. Um, and in an ALAS1, um, it's another enzyme implicated in, in AHP. Um, it's caused by so AHP is caused by um, a genetic mutation in this particular enzyme. So there was another enzyme that I mentioned before, so that's implicated in a subtype of AHP, and then ALAS1 is implicated in another subtype. So we have a couple of players here, um, again, mutations in which lead to the condition, and targeting these enzymes um, through gene silencing leads to a significant benefit as we see with this treatment. Uh, so, yeah, that's the story here with this newest gene uh, therapy. I uh, just wanted to get your take on this. I know we've talked a lot about um, gene therapies and, and things like that. Um, and I, I, th I feel like the field kind of stagnated in the last couple of years, just with issues with delivery of gene therapies um, into, into humans and having sustained sort of benefit and things like that. So what's your, what are your thoughts on this latest gene-based treatment? Well, I think the price tag is certainly, you know, really high, and, yeah. and it makes sense why, uh, why NICE was kind of investigating that and, and potentially why they initially rejected it. Um, I think in these countries um, like the UK and Canada where there's socialized medicine, you know, the government has to be really careful about drug pricing since they're the ones footing the bill. And, um, and so I think they tend to have more oversight uh, and somewhat more uh, control over drug pricing compared to a country um, like the U.S. 
Um, and this is a, a rare disease. Is that yeah. right? This, yeah. So I think that also kind of explains the price tag because there's such a small mm-hmm. patient population that's going to potentially benefit from it. So the company's thinking, you know, how do we recoup development costs? Um, but certainly sounds, um, like a, a good thing that they, they passed it and that these patients will have access to this medication now. Yeah, that price tag um, certainly raises <laughs> a lot of concern. But mm-hmm. um, where you, like you said, Sarah, where the you know places where we have socialized medicine, that's definitely um, it. Definitely helps. But I can't imagine in places like the U.S. where you know will patients ha- readily have access to to this treatment mm-hmm. because of the price tag? Um, how will insurance companies be dealing with this? It's just. Um, Mm-hmm. There's a lot of considerations there price-wise. but um, And you mentioned yeah. the company as well had um, mm-hmm. kind of negotiated a private discount. And, and I think oftentimes what you'll see in, in the U.S. if drugs like this are um, approved and marketed is they'll have like a patient assistance program to help mm-hmm. patients pay. I'm not sure to what extent it helps patients yeah. pay for these kinds of expensive drugs. Um, I think that really varies. Um, and obviously it's a you know complicated system down there with Medicare and Medicaid and private insurers and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, but uh, I think that makes sense that that's something they came out with as well and that they did this further trial to kind of show the, the benefits and, and how they um, uh, how they make the price tag you know make sense, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, those long-term results were, I think, uh, really key to win over NICE. Um, I think they were kind of hesitating on on recommending it um, for whatever reason, even though it was approved in the e- um, by the EMA and the FDA. Mm-hmm. But I think the long-term results here, um, it was a two years, I think, um, analysis, and I think that really um, tipped over the agency and they were like, okay, um, this looks good. So let's go ahead and approve it, approve it. And then you had patients like with a lot of these rare diseases, you have a lot of patient advocacy groups, mm-hmm, were, you I'm know, just thinking that, yeah, yeah, who are kind of like, I think we talked about one recently, um, hmm. for ALS, ALS. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I think it was the ALS association. I think it's a patient advocacy group and they were putting the pressure on, the FDA to, to get this new ALS drug approved. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like, you know, for rare diseases, patients don't have um, many options and they don't want to wait. So it's, it's really tricky to strike that balance between really um, achieving that efficacy that, you know, you're looking for and trying to get treatments to patients quickly. Mm-hmm. So yeah, a lot of considerations uh, there. Mm-hmm. And then if you get things to people too quickly, they're still not happy with it, like the COVID vaccines and things like mm-hmm. that. So it's, um, where, how do you strike that balance? Like what, you know, when we talk about long-term effects, I, you know, that doesn't really apply for vaccines just because of the nature of how they work. It, you know, it's a one, two-time exposure to something. It's out of your body. It's, you're not being exposed to it long-term. So you're not really gauging long-term effects. So when people you know, are hesitant over long-term side effects. Um, I kind of try to explain that it's not the same thing as being, as taking a drug regularly, right? Mm. Um, and then it's like, how long, like, are we talking? Do you want to wait 10 years to see something with the drug? Or mm. it, it's very difficult. Like, I don't think those things are very clearly outlined in, in, ter- in long-term studies, but um, 
Yeah. That's a good point. I, mm-hmm. I often wonder, like, what will be the uptake of a drug like this uh, mm-hmm. among this community? I, I always assume it will be relatively high, like if the access is there, that, that these patients who don't have a lot of other options are going to want an option. Yeah. Um, but, you know, maybe there are some that would still be concerned about the, the newness of the treatment or um, yeah. the idea of gene therapy in general. Um, but certainly those the, the account from the two patients that you shared sounds like it's a, it's a really um, life-changing drug. So mm-hmm. it's good it'll be available now. Yep, absolutely. Another RNA-based uh, treatment. So it's... Uh... I think it's easier to get RNA into into cells and uh, rather than typical like gene, um, do other gene delivery systems like viral vectors and things like that that are a bit more finicky. So I think mRNA technology is really going to be the next big thing. Um, yeah, I was just going to say, it's cool that we're starting to hear that more now, <laughs> like the RNA therapy because of the vaccine. So I think that's, yeah, that's really awesome to see and read especially like this is covered on the BBC and things like that so it's like it's coming into the mainstream yeah absolutely I think it's about time too because uh, I, I think growing up we all heard about gene therapy gene therapy but never quite made it to the, you know the stellar heights that it was supposed to but I think this mRNA the, the, M, the RNA technologies um, are really promising so what do you all think about um you know, obviously in, in Canada and in the UK, we have this socialized medicine and that's great, but certainly um, we pay for it to an extent in another way through higher taxes and things like that. Um, what do you think about that idea of, you know, potentially approving maybe not just this drug, but, but multiple drugs and the downstream effect that has on our taxes? How do you feel about um, the idea of you know, paying for this that's not necessarily going to benefit you or someone you know, um, but patients with a rare disease. I think in some way, everyone can relate to um, each other. Like someone's got to know someone who uh, or a family member who's had like a rare disease or or not even rare. Just I, I think it, it really has to do with just like human empathy and just like that's I guess the whole concept of taxation to begin with is just like helping mm. each other out. But I think in like healthcare specifically, there's there's an even stronger element of empathy, at least among the a decent person, decent people, because um, you can't, can't you can't count on everyone to be like that makes sense. Like I'll, I'll help you out. You can't count on that, but yeah, I don't know. And you'd like to think that if you did have, like, I have a genetic rare disease in my family and that is a very heavy price tag, but we would probably do whatever we could possible to like scrounge up that money and be able to uh, try this treatment if it was effective. Um, But for most people, that's just not feasible. So I feel like we really need that sense of empathy um, to Mm -hmm. to commit to to something like that. Absolutely. I mean, um, that's the whole premise of kind of socialism without getting political here, right? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, But I think it's just gotten such a bad rap where people – um, you have to look at the bigger picture, like, okay, it doesn't affect you, but yeah, just that basic human empathy should be there. And even and if for people for whom it's not there, well, 
let's say later down the road, you may need access to some kind of a treatment um, or maybe you develop some kind of a rare disease. So that's the whole kind of idea behind socialized medicine. And I think um, for people who are against it, um, not talking about the insurance industry, but, um, or, or facets of pharma, but, um, I think that really needs to come into play. And, you know, we talk about all of these concepts and in healthcare these days about patient centricity and, and, um, greater inclusion and diversity in clinical trials and, and, you know, including minority populations and things like that. So I, I, I feel like the conversations are, are getting better around all of this, but I think there is still a long way to go. Um, and to change that public perception of what socialized medicine is, especially in the U.S. Mm, and I think the problem comes with, you know, even if you have that empathy for other people that you don't know that could benefit from something like this, um, the problem comes from if you don't have uh, confidence in, you know, political leaders or the ones that are actually like spending this money and, yeah. and allocating it and that sort of thing. Um, I think that can be a real like stumbling block for some people as well. So, yeah, I was going to say last week we were talking about Breast Cancer Awareness Month and like, um, you know, women having access to things like, um, mm -hmm. uh, uh, mammograms. yes, mammograms, <laughs> yeah. yeah, and that just it's such a simple concept, but yeah, it's so hard to mm -hmm. implement. So yeah, this is all mm -hmm. around the same conversation and the fact that we're like all talking about it means it's being brought up which is a good thing and hopefully with time we'll see changes within the medical industry and I don't know empathy being there I think that that lacks because a lot of people get sick every year so it's just so normalized and I think that's mm. the problem but um yeah that's that's my thoughts on that I hope I hope there's change I hope there will be but I don't know if we'll see it anytime soon like a big change mm -hmm. you know mm-hmm yeah, I think it will have to come from some kind of grassroots, like, it has to come from the public, I would say, like, but I feel like um, a lot of the public in places like the U.S. Um, are so entrenched in, you know, just kind of dogmatic thinking over socialized elements and, yeah, distrust of the government and things like that, that they mm -hmm. find themselves aligning with insurance companies that do not work in their favor. So I feel like, you know, maybe some education is, is needed there. And um, yeah, we'll see kind of what happens. But uh, there are so many different models, like you have tiered systems, you have like, a, like hybrid public private systems and things like that. So there are, you know, various options if people are totally against this socialist idea. But mm -hmm. Yeah, lots of interesting discussion there. Uh, so that brings us to the end of this episode of the Xhox Life Science Podcast. If you like today's show, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks, everyone, and see you all next week. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Xhox Life Science Podcast. If you enjoyed our discussions today, please share the episode with your friends and colleagues and be sure to subscribe in order to be notified when a new episode is released. To join in on the discussion, you can find Xtalks on social media, email podcast at xtalks.com or comment on the articles directly. Links are in the show description. Take a moment to join our community at xtalks.com to get access to everything we have to offer, including webinars, job listings, virtual meetings, articles, and more. 
The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers sharing them. They should not be taken as professional advice and do not necessarily reflect the policy or position Honeycomb Worldwide. For further information, email us at podcast at xtalk.com. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next week.